Good morning, everybody. Um, thanks for being here. So my name is Ann Farr, and how many of you were here last week, last Sunday? So about 75, maybe 80 percent. Um, just very quickly, I, my husband Tommy is here. My mom and dad are here too. Hi, mom and dad. Um, um, Tommy and I have been at Fellowship, back at Fellowship for about five years. We were at Two Rivers for five or six years, and we started our kind of journey together as a couple at Fellowship way back in 97. So um, we've been here for a long time. We love it here. We're very grateful for the community and the, I guess, nurturing of our faith that's been been available to us here at, Pel- uh, here at Fellowship. I teach and work at Pellissippi Community College and have taught there full-time for about eight years, and Tommy teaches and coaches at uh, CAK here in Knoxville. So that's just a little bit about about us. Um, I wanted to just um, cue off of one thing that Greg mentioned in his testimony, and thanks for that this morning. Um, He talked about how um, he really had only applied, would you say, two things, you know, as a result of all the teaching. We get a ton of information and a ton of wisdom in this class, and that's one of the great blessings of this group, I think, and of this church, but sometimes it can also be one of the great burdens because especially if you're like me, I think I told you all last week, I'm like, uh, catastrophizing is my spiritual gift. Guilt is my spiritual gift. So it's very easy for me to feel like I've, you know, been drinking from the fire hose and go home and just feel completely overwhelmed and defeated and worried and scared. And so I just want to open by saying that is the, that is not the intent. I don't think that's ever the intent of this class. Um, and it's certainly not, uh, the intent of these or the purpose of this information that we're going to share. I really feel like it's important for all of us as we come every Sunday just to ask God, you know, what is it that you have for me? What's, what, what is my take home? What do you want to talk to me about? What do you want me to take home and, and apply back into my family? And it's not 30 things, probably. Um, it may be one thing or two things, and it may be that same thing. You may just need to be faithful about that thing for a long period of time. It may not even be a new thing every week. So I just want to say that, I guess, in light of um, my own personality and temperament and tendency to kind of just feel like I just, I pilot on myself. And so I would not want that to impact any, any of you that way. Um, so last Sunday, we, um, it was supposed to be a one Sunday uh, teaching, and it's called Discipling Digital Natives. Um, and it has to do with technology's impact on our children and really on us too, and we're going to talk about that some today. And I kind of broke it into two categories. One is one is technology's impact on our ability to learn. Sorry, um, which is primarily what we talked about last last week. And I'll kind of review that just a little bit. Some of the brain science and some of the research, and then also some of the kind of ideas about how we learn as far as our brain wiring and that sort of thing. So we talked a lot about that last week, um, and we didn't get to the loving part, which is what we're going to talk about today. So um, I want to start with, we didn't really talk a lot about Scripture last week. Obviously, that's important. So I wanted to share, I have one for uh, Scripture for the beginning and a Scripture for the end of our time together. And it's just this Luke 2.52 verse, which I remember memorizing years and years ago. Um, Jesus grew in, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And I just wanted to point out some of the meanings of these words because really parenting uh, and teaching in our educational uh, environments is really about 
cultivating our children's growth in these areas. And I, this is a whole other theological discussion, but have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus himself, who was fully God, still grew? That he had a way that he could grow, he had areas where he could grow because he was also fully human? That's fascinating to me that Scripture decided, you know, that God decided to be sure that we had that idea in Scripture. So, and these are the categories in which he grew. He grew in wisdom, and the Greek word for wisdom, this is all out of Blue Letter Bible. I don't know if y'all use that. I love it. Um, Wisdom, uh, the Greek word is Sophia, and it's broad. It means broad and full of intelligence, used of the knowledge of very diverse matters, and acquired by acuteness and experience. So wisdom isn't just about opening up our brain and pouring in information. Wisdom is about acutely observing our surroundings and exposing ourselves to a range of experiences, not to uh, one singular experience. Um, Stature is uh, age, term, length of life, height. I looked at another translation this morning, and it was just our body, you know, how our bodies grow. Um, And then favor is charis, which is charity, grace, goodwill, loving kindness. And then um, the word grew means to make progress, to advance, and to go forward. And I don't think any one of us would be here this morning if if our hearts didn't want to see our children continue to grow in these areas. And I kind of see some tie-in between the categories that Luke gave for how Jesus grew and what we're going to talk about today. So maybe that'll set a little bit of a a framework or a backdrop. So we talked about learning last week. We talked about brain neurons. And like I said last week, I'm really glad Clark's here because this is all information that I've acquired partly through this class and then also through um, my work teaching and reading. Um, But basically, our brains have neurons. They create neural pathways and that's how we learn, and that's how we remember information. But when we don't continue to encounter experiences that call for our brain to travel and continue to build those neural pathways, they weaken. Um, And so we talked a little bit about that last week, and also how technology tends to distract us from the kinds of neural pathways that we want to continue to have strong. Um, We lose our ability to summon deep attention and be reflective over time. That takes practice. So I'm going to quote more heavily today from one writer and a researcher. Her name is Sherry Turkle. I think I mentioned her her last week. She's out of MIT, um, and there are a number, if you have the handout, there are a number of pieces that are written by her. She's done a couple of TED Talks. She has an article called The The Flight from Conversation, She's really fascinating because she started 30 years ago researching the value of technology, and she kind of became famous because of her kind of proponency, I guess, is that a word? Her being a proponent of how valuable technology is. But as she's kind of continued in her study, she's also a psychologist, and she started to trace how our reliance on technology is impacting how we interact with others and impacting our set, just impacting who we are. And she's, it's interesting, she's, she's kind of backpedaled in a way. But one of the things that I also really like about her is that she's not simply backpedaling, she's also saying, you know what, if our brains can change this way, if technology can impact our brains in ways that perhaps are not as desirable, 
that means that our brains can be impacted in the ways that are de desirable. In other words, our brains are malleable. Those neural pathways are malleable. So just because our brains, we don't travel those neural pathways for a season doesn't mean that they're lost forever. It means that they can be rebuilt. And that, to me, is really hopeful um, and helpful information to have. So somebody emailed me this week and said, you know, because it's kind of a long reading list that I gave you, um, somebody said, what, what are the key pieces? I don't know that I could identify any, but I was, as I was looking back over through this week, I did realize that I think Sherry Turkle's work is especially... I like it because it's very accessible. For somebody who's as smart and as brilliant and as well-respected in kind of the intellectual realm as she is, she's so clear. Uh, she, she's very easy to understand. So she's got a couple of TED Talks and then that article, The Flight from Conversation. What's also interesting to me is that Peter Scazzaro, who I don't know if you're familiar with his work, he's a Christian. He has um, a ministry called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And actually his wife, Jerry Scazzaro, came and spoke at uh, Cedar Springs in the women's ministry, I think it's maybe four or five years ago. Um, and he wrote uh, a whole review of Sherry Turkle's book and talked about how important it is for believers, particularly believers who are wanting to build relationships with the world as opposed to just our own people, how important it is for how important her work is to inform, you know, our call to to share Christ with others. So some of what I quote is going to be from Peter Scazzaro's review of Sherry Turkle's book. So I think that those are really key pieces of reading. I also wrote a couple of new articles up here that are not on your reading list. One of them is called Patience is an Offline Virtue. It is on the Christianity Today site. Um, one of their kind of regular writers gave up technology for Lent. I think it was in 2015. And she writes about how that impacted her. And one of the questions that came up last week was, it was, okay, we're getting all of this information. We're starting to see how technology may be impacting us or our children. What do we do with it? What are, what are the action steps? And, and obviously, I'm very hesitant to be prescriptive in any way because like you said, Greg, we're all different. Our children are all different. We all have very different callings. We have very different families. So that's really not a direction that I would feel comfortable going. Um, but I would say that she offers some interesting ideas about ways that she kind of tried to create some boundaries around technology. Um, and I, I think it's just a good, well-written, short, helpful article with lots of information condensed into something, you know, that you can get through. And then another one, this one actually just popped across my feed this week. It's from the Atlantic Magazine, and it's called, How Well Do We Understand the Tech Habits of Parents? Um, and one of the things that you may have thought about last week, and I know that I've thought about a lot, is that it's real easy for me to think about how my children need to put their phones away, but the reality is I need to put my phone away. I need to close my computer. I'm as distracted as they are. And this article actually gets at how parents' behavior around technology may be perpetuating some of the uh, social-emotional struggles that we're seeing in our children today. So I'm going to try to weave in uh, some quotes from that article as well. But it's real easy just to Google either one of those titles and maybe the name of the magazine or the journal that it came from, and they should pop right up. Sometimes Christianity Today will block you. It'll say you have to log in, but if you just create an account, uh, you can access all of their information. And they, they, they do some really good work, I think, um, in the world of, of media. 
So, at any rate, uh, as far as how technology impacts our learning, what happens is we have a hard time, as we continue to expose ourselves to technology, we have a hard time maintaining deep, sustained focus on difficult, challenging ideas. Um, because it takes practice to do those things. That gets back at the neural pathway idea. So there's that saying, you know, we can do hard things. Well, sometimes what happens is because technology makes us want things to be quick, it makes us want things to be easy, it makes us want things to be smooth um, and streamlined. Instead of we can do hard things, we start not wanting to do hard things. Um, and then we start believing that it's not possible for us to do hard things, and then eventually we just plain, we're just not going to do them. Um, so that's kind of a, a process that we talked about last time. Um, I want to give you now some information about facts regarding college students. Um, and again, a lot of these are pulled from Peter Scazzaro's review of Sherry Turkle's book. So nine of ten college students text in class. How many of you are teachers in here? You see phones in the class, it doesn't matter what you do, um, they're there. Um, two to three minutes is too long without checking their phones. Has anybody already checked your phone this morning? Yeah, it's okay. I did right before I got up here, and I just put it back there so I wouldn't look at it, although I may need it before it's all said and done. Um, also, one of the uh, facts about technology is that it actually blurs reality. Um, when we multitask, it kind of gives us the sense that, have you ever had one of those mornings or one of those days where you were just, like, that day you had yesterday, Greg? I know you're exhausted when you got to the end of it, but if I were living that kind of day that was that full and I was actually making it through, I'd be kind of, you know, feeling excited and happy about that. And that's kind of what multitasking does. It makes us feel kind of invincible, um, and literally it gives us a neurochemical high, but that blurs the truth about how well we're actually doing. Um, we think that we're doing better than what we actually are, particularly in academics. Um, also, research is showing that just if there's a phone on a table, even if that phone is turned off, that changes what people are willing to share. It changes the depth and the quality of the communication that we have which obviously is going to impact the quality of our relationships. Um, and that, not only, let's say I'm, you know, in a conversation with Alina, and Alina has her phone out, or I have my phone out. Well, Alina knows it may ping while we're talking, and I don't want to interrupt. I don't want to get, you know, get too involved in a conversation. So she's going to limit, perhaps, what she's willing to share in that time of, you know, communication that we have. That is a cost to her, perhaps, but it also comes at a cost to me because I'm not able, you know, to engage with her uh, in a way that's going to be more life-giving. Um, so that's why in my classes, for example, at Pellissippi, I tell my students often unsuccessfully, I don't even want to see your phone. You know, it needs to be out of sight and needs to be turned off. Um, that makes some students really, really mad. Um, instead, what we prefer because of technology are things that are fun, Right? I think we talked about that last week, like the pressure for teachers. Do you all feel the pressure to be entertaining, to be engaging, to have all the smoke and mirrors and the bells and whistles and do the flip-flops and the gymnastics and all that kind of stuff? That's because a lot of trends in education put that pressure on the teacher to be engaging, which is really entertaining. 
Um, and that cultivates that taste that we have for things to be entertaining. That's what technology does to us, too. I mean, I don't know if you've watched any of the news reports about even just the way, if you, if you have an iPhone, just the way the colorfulness of the icons, um, they're entertaining, they're engaging, they're kind of captivating. Um, technology kind of cultivates, caters to our taste for that. Obviously, technology makes us want things to be faster, okay, including learning which is not a realistic expectation for true learning. True learning isn't instantaneous. True learning is that slow process. We talked about the four phases of learning last week. You know, you can't jump from um, unconscious incompetency to unconscious competency. You can't leapfrog to that. You have to go through the processes, and that's slow. It's not always comfortable. Um, and technology is kind of undermining that. So technology makes us want experiences that are free of discomfort um, and also free of inconvenience. Um, we were going to dinner last night, and uh, we were trying to call a restaurant and see, because our kids are out of town. Woo so we were trying to call and see if there was a restaurant that had call-ahead seating, and there wasn't, and it was so inconvenient and annoying. And I think that's just one example of kind of how, how much we just want things to be convenient. Um, so, because technology creates an environment that caters to our preferences, I would argue that it fosters our sense of privilege. You know, we think we don't even deserve to have to wait anymore. What kind of world do we live in that would make me um, have to pause, have to be inconvenienced, have to care about something else besides the song that I want to listen to on Spotify right now because I'm in this mood right now um, and this is the perfect song. So. I guess that's kind of a theory I have about technology. Um, this is a quote from Sherry Turkle's article, The Flight from Conversation. We're together, but each of us is in our own little bubble, furiously connected to keyboards and tiny touch screens. And in that article, she talks about how in the workplace, so often now, I mean, I know that I'm on my computer a ton, but now, how many of you, where you work, see people who are also have headphones on or earbuds. Yeah, um, and that's, again, that's our cocoon. That's our protective cocoon so that we're not interrupted. Um, in school, those, again, those of you who are teachers, how many of you have students that walk around with earbuds? Yeah, or just one. <laughs> that's my favorite. When they walk up and they're listening to something that they're trying to talk to me at the same time, um, I don't know how, I know I couldn't do that. Um, so we're just constantly kind of, through technology, creating our own little cocoon that really blocks us and protects us, frankly, from having to do the hard work of relating. Um, this is a little bit redundant. But the fact is that if we want to learn and if we want to grow in wisdom the way that Scripture talks about, we have to be attentive. We have to pay attention, focus in uh, on the world around us, and that takes effort. It's not easy to do that. Does anybody have a hard time paying attention? I do. Um, it seems to be increasing, and I like to say it's just age, but it's probably not just that. Um, again, from Sherry Turkle, we want to customize our lives. We want to move in and out of where we are because the thing we value most is control over where we focus our attention. It kind of makes me think about, um, I, I like to go to the YMCA how many of y'all like to go to a gym to exercise? What does everybody have on? 
headphones, their own music, their own machine, their own little TV show. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but when that is the whole of our human experience, I think that probably is something that we need to consider. So focusing on ideas in the classroom, in our reading, in the world around us, that takes effort and it takes practice. That's retraveling those neural pathways, strengthening that kind of focusing muscle, if you will. Um, so that has to do with learning. Um, so here's another quote, and this is from the Atlantic article. Neurological tests show that smartphone use activates neural transmitters in our brains that in turn reinforce the habit of checking our smartphones. So not only is technology kind of deteriorating our ability to focus, it actually is, you know, increasing a chemical in our brain that makes us want more of that. It's kind of like I am with my coffee in the morning. I just want a little bit more. That's, that's what this technology is doing. And actually, some companies, is it Apple? There's one company that's admitting to the fact that it is designing the product so that it will feed our perceived need for it. Or could you say the word addiction? Can I say that word? Um, so... Um, that impacts our learning. So I would say technology is undermining our ability to focus on ideas, but where do ideas come from? Ideas come from people, right? And so technology isn't just undercutting our ability to focus and concentrate and attend to ideas. It is undercutting our ability, and I would argue our willingness to really focus on people who perhaps initially are uh, unfamiliar to us, who make us uncomfortable, with whom we disagree, who believe things that we don't believe in. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately about how social media puts, puts its users in an echo chamber. Are you familiar with that idea? Um, it's it's, it's kind of creepy when you think about it. But, um, and in fact, it's actually happened, um, as I do research on my computer, suddenly on Facebook, these articles pop up about these topics. That's because there's some fancy, I don't even know how, how they do it, but they figure out what I'm thinking about, and they keep feeding me more information about what I'm already thinking about, and then I stop hearing information that's contradictory or that might balance out my viewpoint. So we're kind of putting ourselves in an echo chamber where we're only surrounded by ideas and by people who are just like us. And there is no way that we can bring Christ to the world if we're putting ourselves in an intellectual and physical echo chamber. It's just not possible because we're talking only to ourselves. Um, so that gets at the loving part. Um, another word for loving would be empathy. Okay, our ability to empathize with other people. Um, and that's what Sherry Turkle talks about. She talks about the importance of face-to-face -face conversation. Um, and that's where empathy skills are strengthened and practiced. Um, however, when we use our digital devices for communication, we're not building necessarily our empathy muscles. I think I'll keep going. Um, and this is out of Christianity Today. It's an article about evangelism, and I thought it might be worthwhile to share today. It says, if we want others to understand where we are coming from, if we want uh, them to come believe our beliefs for themselves, it is important for us as Christians to be willing to empathize with 
and understanding where others are coming from. I tried to look up uh, where the word empathy appears in Scripture. It appears, if, if my research was right, one time it's in Hebrews 5. Um, and the beginning of Hebrews 5 talks about we don't have to worry that we are coming to a great priest who cannot empathize with our shortcomings and with our needs. So Christ is the embodiment of being able to empathize. So that I think that does need to be a quality that we want to seek after ourselves. So I would argue that loving your neighbor as yourself, which is part of the greatest commandment, is uh, the same as empathy. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you are not attempting to empathize with your neighbor. So let's talk about empathy. Um, you'll, it's not hard to find this statistic. Um, in the last 30 years, there's been a 40% drop in empathy among college students. Um, does anybody have any theories about why empathy might be shrinking or weakening? Yeah, focus on me. What else? Just like you said, everyone is kind of focused in their own little world, and they're not broadening it because they're so busy doing different things that they're uncomfortable getting into areas that they know very little bit about. Mm -hmm. So I think it just makes it very easy to live day to day if you don't have any type of differences. Right. So we just get on a track, make our list of what we want to do, and carry it out. Lena? So there was another study that looked at very wealthy people versus not very wealthy people, and what they found was that very, sorry if you're wealthy, very wealthy people process um, human beings in need, so mm -hmm. we feel empathy, the same as their brain processed objects, whereas the people, you know, a group is a group study, the people who are not very wealthy process them as humans. Hmm. And so it, it looked more like an empathy thing. So I guess, given your talk, I'm wondering if, if, we, if our connection to human, humanity is primarily digital, if that sort of alters the way we process other humans, because that's a picture on our screen mm -hmm. meant to represent another human. So I don't know. It does objectify them. You know, and you think also, think about, does anybody get overwhelmed when you watch the news or when... You know, I have to. I have the thing on my phone. I don't want the all the news flashes on my phone because it's always something legitimately tragic and horrifying. But when that hits us over and over again, um, it's easy to objectify it. You know, our bodies were not made. I don't think to manage that quantity uh, and intensity of all the terrible things that are happening in our world today. Now, what I'm not saying is that. We need to just pretend like those things aren't happening. But what I am saying is that technology has increased our exposure to that in a way that perhaps doesn't match how our bodies were designed. Um, so, yeah, we tend to objectify things. It's just that much easier to uh, take the humanity out of it because, you know, eventually we have to manage our own emotional response to that thing. Um, and when we have to manage that emotional response over and over again, eventually we just repress it and separate ourselves actually from our own body is what some psychologists would say. Yes? Uh, along the lines of what you're both saying, I think that um, we become dulled to all of that as a product of 
everything that's coming across with the news being so tragic and yes. we just become our sensitivity to mankind and even our own families become dull to it because of so much travesty. Out of necessity, really. It's almost like a coping mechanism. Um, so I would say those are some of the reasons that we're seeing, researchers are seeing a decrease in empathy. Um, so that decrease in empathy and our reliance on technology is creating some things that we're uncomfortable with in our relationships. So I kind of tried to categorize some of those things. And so, uh, if it says Cazero, these are quotes from his review of Turkle's book. Um, so we're uncomfortable with authenticity. Okay, on social media, we're curating who we are, we airbrush, we just put the happy stuff. Even if we put the unhappy stuff, it has to be a certain type of unhappy stuff, right? Um, probably don't put the really, really unhappy stuff or the unpretty stuff. We do not want to make ourselves vulnerable because we're uncomfortable with vulnerability. Um, we're also uncomfortable with unpleasant emotions. Um, we can use our phones to block Difficult feelings, sadness, uh, awkward moments. How many of you, and, and this is me, how many of you pretty much have a, a time in your day or a time in your week where you pull away and it's, you know, you checking your email or you checking social media or you checking your favorite news site? That can actually be kind of a, a self-soothing uh, practice. Um, and that in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. Obviously, we all need to have coping mechanisms for the difficult emotions that we have to deal with. But when we're using technology to block those emotions, especially if technology is feeding the neurotransmitters, it's going to kind of make us, or I'm sorry, not the neurotransmitters, the dopamine. If it's triggering dopamine, it's going to kind of lure us back to technology as the soothing mechanism, which is, could I say it's almost like alcohol? I mean, it's, it's going to dull, as you say, kind of our emotion, it'll dull our feelings of our emotions and hence our ability to process those emotions in ways that are healthy. And, and yes. the other thing as you spoke about this is that it takes longer to discuss your children's feelings. Hmm. I mean, if they, they start to understand, if I kind of go, well, what about this person or this situation? Well, that takes a long time. Takes time. And this blank stare is like, I don't know what you mean. How does that relate to this? Mm -hmm. But if we go through a conversation, it's going to take time. And a lot of us as parents don't want to take the time, and the kids sure don't want mm -hmm. to. So that quick response, yeah. that easy answer. We want it fast. Yes. We want our human interaction to be very tidy, very predictable, very neat, tie everything up with a pretty bow at the end, and there's a very simple answer that we can get to in a short three-step, five-minute conversation. Yeah, that happens a lot with teenagers, I know. Um, so yes, we want things to be come quickly, and that's you know another piece of information that the research is uncovering. We're uncomfortable with the lack of predictability in our human relationships. Um, my mom and dad are here, so I'm going to give an example on myself. So one of the things that I've noticed for me in my own work, because I do a lot of communication at work on email, um, I do a lot of that. And I have noticed in myself in about, I don't know how many years, it's been a while, I don't really like to talk on the phone anymore. And I'll tell my mom and dad, I'm like, I don't like to talk on the phone. I want to come see you in person. Why don't I like to talk on the phone? I'm talking about my mom and dad because I talk to them on the phone. They're one of the few people, really, frankly, with whom I talk on the phone. 
um, my parents, one of my sisters, uh, and my other siblings from time to time. And then Tommy, although when Tom and I talk on the phone, it's, it's just a quick exchange of information and hang up, and we'll talk when we get home. In fact, my son called, our son called me yesterday. They're on a trip, and I, would, it, it, I just felt so happy to hear his voice, and I was stunned that he actually called me. Does anybody else not like to talk on the phone? Why? For me, sorry. No, go ahead, Elizabeth, and then... And so if I'm going to have a conversation that's of substance, I really want to look in somebody's face. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much reading happens by looking into somebody's eyes. Yes. And having that almost unspoken exchange when you're having a verbal exchange. Well, a pretty significant amount of our meaning actually comes not from our words, but from our body language. So, yeah, I think for sure. What were you going to say, Victoria? I was going to say, being a baby boomer, you know, a little bit older than some of you, I remember, like, in my 20s, I'd get on the phone, and I would talk to my girlfriends two hours. Me too. On and on and on and on. And this went on, you know, for many, many years. And now with technology, I find myself, like, texting to you. I have to make an appointment now to make a call. I do too. And I don't feel like I, I can call my mother any time. But I have to really think now, gosh, am I going to interrupt them? Um, what are they doing? Are they going to take my call? And, and I'll, now I'll, I'll make a, a time and appointment. So that's totally changed. And I don't really feel, you know, that now do I have the time to sit on the phone for two hours? Yeah. Well, now our phones travel with us, right? So I can call mom and dad while I'm driving, right? Which they don't love. Um, but, we, you know, we do. We kind of have to schedule a time, find the time. I know one of the reasons that I don't like to talk on the phone is because it, it's not linear. Those conversations, they're human, right? Because I call to talk about this one thing, and then something else comes up, and that's important. Those are important things. So I want to have the time blocked off and protected so that I can attend to all those things um, but sometimes a phone call, in, in my mind, is more just about getting the information out there and then moving on, which is not particularly human. Um, so we don't like the unpredictability that's inherent in human relationships. I love this quote, these quotes from Turkle. Human relationships are rich. They're messy and demanding. We've learned the habit of clearing them up with technology, but it's a process in which we short, gosh, there's typos, in which we shortchange ourselves. Um, worse, don't tell my students at school, I'm an English teacher. Worse, it seems that over time we stop caring. We forget that there is a difference between our human relating and our technology. So um, it's true. It's just messy, right? Relationships aren't predictable. They're not tidy. Um, they don't have a beginning point and an ending point. They're kind of ongoing People are comforted by being in touch with a lot of people, carefully kept at bay. We can't get enough of one another if we can use technology to keep one another at distances we can control. Not too close, not too far, but just right. She calls that the Goldilocks effect. So we use technology to kind of manage our level of vulnerability, the level of inconvenience that we're willing to allow ourselves to um, engage in, um, and it's affecting the quality of our relationships. Were you going to say something, Elizabeth? I was going to say, I remember sitting in a, a 
grocery store parking lot just dumbfounded because the radio was sharing a study that had just taken place about why teenagers particularly are um, not as comfortable now face-to-face -face conversations. And it was because the texting allows a timed, you're in control yes. of how you respond and you think it through and you can respond at any time that you choose versus a conversation with somebody demands that you are in response in real time and that's not as controlled and that is more unknown. Yes. And I was, I, I, I was dumbfounded. Well, we're going to get to that because what's happening now is researchers are noticing that this discomfort that we have with the unpredictability of human relationships is what is maybe behind some of the social anxiety that we're seeing in our teens today. They don't want to interact face-to-face. -face. They want to be able to text because they can answer when they want to. They can answer the way that they want to. They don't have to worry about whether if their face betrays their true emotions. They can just use a little emoticon, and it may or may not be you know, accurate to how they're really feeling. Um, First, so this is exactly what you were talking about, Elizabeth. The first generation of children who grew up with smartphones have a hard time with eye contact, beginning and ending conversations, and are lacking in key relational skills. And I think a lot of times we want to use technology to help our, you know, we, we I don't want to say that. Um, technology seems like a way to help children connect, make connections and sustain connections. And I know that's one of the reasons that our kids do have smartphones with group messages. And I don't know if this is right or wrong. You know, we were with a kid over spring break who doesn't have access to a smartphone who is just so good relationally. Well, it's, it's Bryce and Morell. And our kids do have smartphones. And the reason that we gave them smartphones is because there are all these group messages with their friends, their close friends at school, and that's how they... And so they would miss out. They would miss out on a lot of that. Now, whether or not it's a good thing uh, whether or not it's good that they're maintaining those connections. I want to think it is. But after we spent, you know, a week with Bryson, we were like, wow, he's doing just fine. He's doing just fine and such, such a delight to be around. We're getting uncomfortable. Our students are getting uncomfortable. So one of the things that I do at Pellissippi is if a faculty member sees a student who's struggling, the faculty member can uh, give me the name of the student, and then I'll reach out to that student and meet with that student in my office. I've, I've had meetings this week with students like that. So used to, I could extend the invitation, that student would come by, we'd sit down and talk. Um, or the student would get my name and come and see me. But there's been kind of this steady progression, you know, I guess you'd call it like more degrees of separation. This is the first time this has happened. This year, I got an email from somebody who's an employee of the college who knew a student who had a friend who was struggling with something. So the actual student who was struggling went to the friend who went to an employee who contacted me for that student way over here. I was never given that student's name. I was supposed to feed that information, the helpful information back. And, you know, that's just anecdotal, um, but that to me is a picture of the fact that that student was comfortable talking to that friend. Um, and that's the only, well, that's the person that the student chose to talk to. Instead of being willing to come and find an actual person at the college who might be able to help. And it also makes me wonder, well, 
does that kid have anybody at home, you know, to talk to? So students are uncomfortable. The more uh, the students spent using online communication methods, the more likely they were to show symptoms of anxiety about communicating face-to-face. There's another article on the works consulted list that gets at exactly what Elizabeth is talking about. And for me as an educator, that has tremendous ramifications for how I'm going to use technology in the classroom. How, how am I going to use it in ways that are not going to feed my students' anxiety that's already there? And besides, I don't want to just not feed the anxiety. I want them to get stronger and better and more confident talking to adults, talking to other people. So I'm not going to have, you know, a little game in my class where they vote for something online and just their anonymous results show up on the screen. I want them to be able to communicate for themselves what they think and say it in front of the class. And the only way that they're going to be willing to do that is if they practice doing that. I don't want to do anything to kind of enable that ongoing uh, social anxiety. So this is a quote from Turkle. It's just a student who said, man, someday I wish, I sure wish I could learn how to have a real conversation. But not yet. Certainly not now. Yes. If you have a child that has difficulty in conversation, Mm -hmm. the whole technology thing when it first started, it was set at a computer. And there's positive aspects of that. And we talked about that last week. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. It definitely creates even more of a problem for the children that were already a little anxious or developmentally behind that they're not at that point anyways. And now with technology, they're dropping down further, in my opinion. So we're not talking about no use of technology. We're talking about wise use of technology. And technology to help us accomplish the goals that are the goals that we want to accomplish. And to be aware of how technology might be undercutting our desire to cultivate those characteristics. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Seven years. And so seeing uh, young college students come into our home and sit down with us and have interaction and fellowship with other community, um, it's been interesting for me to watch and chat with people who, um, and these college students who, some of them are really able to communicate their thoughts, their feelings, be vulnerable, um, share where they're struggling, and then others are really um, more closed off. And as I've kind of watched people coming in out of my home, With this, I think a lot of it boils down to what was happening in the home and conversations. And I've noticed those who are more um, apt to share and be vulnerable with where they're struggling or things that are going well have been students who um, have created those pathways. Hmm. Been able, like their parents have been asking them these questions for years, and they're able to open up and share about their emotions. And so I just think it's so interesting that your statistics are kind of backing that up too, that if we're creating pathways with our with our kiddos, uh, asking them... Just practice. Questions, mm-hmm. Then it becomes more natural for them. Um, yeah, and I bet you've seen a change in the students over the seven years, even from, yeah. you know, when you started till now. I do want to say one thing. Um, our culture values extroverts. Um, and we tend to label extroverts as... I almost heard it a little bit even in what you said, Greg, like I'm a recovering introvert. Introversion is not a flaw. 
Um, introversion is a way that God makes a person. And so I'm not implying that if people aren't willing to talk, that that means that they're less than in any way. I think what I would say is almost everybody's going to need to be able to have those conversations at one time or another, whether it comes flows naturally out of their wiring or whether their work or a relationship requires it. Um, so I just kind of wanted to stick that in there because I didn't mean to imply that extroversion was what everybody um, had to possess. Well, just to balance that out, extroversion requires extroverts to practice active listening. Yes. Because that does make a relationship. It's yeah, so even if... person doing the talking, it's active listening and a back and forth. Right. So, you know, just as God, the extroverts have things that they have to practice too. That's a good point. So extroversion kind of tends to want to communicate, but not necessarily be on the receiving end of communication. The communication process is there's a sender and there's a receiver, and communication requires the individual to play both roles well, not just the sender part of the information. Um, anything else? So the things that I have at the end are kind of getting at this. This deals with students, what we've talked about so far. And I think there's a lot of application in the home and in the classroom and even for ourselves. But the article that I found this week is kind of a new study on parents' use of technology and how that impacts the manner uh, in which we parent. Um, I thought this one was interesting. Since 2012, people feel increasingly ignored by others in their family households because of smartphone use. Um, anybody felt ignored by anybody done any ignoring while you're trying to? Yeah, me too. So it's a phenomenon. It's not just in our homes. It's being studied um, and noted. The more caregivers were absorbed by their smartphones, the more harshly they're treated their children. Um, Older generations are more avid users of social networks than their younger counterparts. I know we've talked a lot about, you know, worrying about which social networks or whether our children are involved with social networks. But, you know, the fact of the matter is Facebook, Instagram, I don't know. Does anybody do MySpace anymore? I never did, but I know that's kind of, a, that's kind of went the way of the 8-track. But, um, you know, we, we use social media also, and we use a lot of texting also. Um, Parents are more likely to be active on social networks than kids, is what this research says. And, well, I'll just keep going. Here's how that social network activism or activity can impact us. When I'm a mom and I'm on social media and social media is all about showing the pretty stuff, guess how I feel? Bad, right? Loser. Loser mama. Okay creates literally depression. And I don't think that that's unique to only women or moms. I think that's probably universal. Um, but this to me was interesting. Mothers who reported a higher frequency of technological interruptions when interacting with their kids also tended to report a higher level of problem behaviors in those same kids. So parents are being, maybe, being distracted by technology not giving that human interaction that our children need to our children, not giving our children opportunities to participate in that interaction. They also need that kind of human exchange. And so what do they do? 
they go somewhere else or act in another way. That's their coping mechanism. Act out to get that need met in ways that aren't necessarily appropriate or healthy. Um, so it's like this cycle. Um, they call it technoference. So there's your word for today. Um, just how technology interferes with us. It was related to children reporting less parental warmth, and 11% of teens struggled quite a bit or a great deal to get their parents' attention when their parent was on their cell phone or tablet. Ouch. Sherry Turkle talks about how when parents go and pick up their kids from school and the kids are walking out to the car, ready to see their parents, ready to get that eye-to-eye contact, how was your day, what's going on, they get in the car, what's mom or dad doing? Yeah, busy. Um, So, sorry, this is like stepping on toes, including my own. Um, So this is kind of like a cycle. Parents are distracted by technology, leading to children's behavior problems, increasing parental stress. What do they do as a coping mechanism? What do we do as a coping mechanism? Yeah, go back to technology, block it, okay, which means more device, device distraction, which just causes the cycle to continue. That's all such good news, isn't it? Um, I want to go back to Scripture, and I want to reiterate the point that Sherry Turkle makes, and that's that if we're seeing our brains change in one way, when you look at the length of the scope of humanity's existence, this change is over a very short span of time, relatively speaking. And so if it can change a lot in this amount of time, it can change back, right? It's not like we've started down a hill that we can't go back up. Um, And I think one of the ways to do that is just be really intentional about following what Christ himself identified as the greatest commandment. So I thought about making some pictures to go with this next verse, but I decided that would be just mean. Um, So I won't, but I'm going to tell you what I thought about. So this is that passage out of Deuteronomy that I know Stacy and uh, David taught on a few weeks ago. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home instead of what? Technoference. Um, talk about them when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. When it said, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, I was thinking, what is usually in our hands? What are we usually looking at? Um, Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So that's what we're called to do. Um, It's very easy to get distracted from that. We have a very powerful... um, We have many powerful technological devices that some would say are actively trying to distract us. But even if they're not, we're just easily distracted because we're humans. But we can be, we can realign our focus. We can uh, look again to what we're called to do and think about ways that we want to reduce the parts of our lives that are undermining our loving the Lord and loving our neighbor as ourselves. and instead look for ways to create opportunities for us to walk out, the, I guess, those calls. So I think that that's, well, I guess then the question is, what are implications? I don't know how much time we have, Clark. Oh, three minutes. Three minutes. Um, so maybe, these are, maybe, maybe we don't discuss. 
maybe you just think about it for a minute. You might even write, if you've, got, if you've been taking notes or if you've got the handout or something like this. Maybe this is that moment where you say, okay, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for me when I go home this afternoon? What does it mean for me this week? I know for me as an educator, it is a constant, my school wants me to use technology. Our school board wants money for technology in the classroom. Um, my kids want their technology. I will say one thing that was, is wildly unpopular that we do anyway sometimes is we call it a screen Sabbath, you know, where we make them put their stuff away. Um, they still don't like it. Um, but that's just kind of one little, little thing that we try to do, not even consistently. Um, not, not something that anybody really enjoys. Um, but something that's important. So what are the implications for you in your home, in your workplace, in your relationships, uh, in your interaction with your school, with your children's school, with your children's teachers, um, and with your neighbors, um, the people that live in your neighborhood? So, yeah. I will say, like on the screen side, they don't like it, but it is once they've gotten used to it when they're in it, it's a lot better. And the other thing, too, is when we've taken like our son's phone away for like a week at various times, I mean, there's a change. There's a change in his behavior. Not really behavior, but in his... It's his outlook. In his countenance mm-hmm. uh, to a degree. Just, I mean, he does other things. He plays guitar. He, written, he does other things. And it just seems... I mean, to us... Now, he won't admit it because we've asked him and he's like, nice. But to us, I mean... I feel like you can see a change. So. And I had one par- another parent today talk about how uh, with a child, um, they, this person saw direct correlation between technology use and behavior. And this was somebody in the middle school. And one of the things I think about is every day when my kids kind of come home from school, how many hours do, you all, do your kids spend doing homework after school with technology? Because that's what the school is asking. It's a lot, right? Or it is for us. It may or may not be for you. Doug? Well, one last thing in relation to that. One of my kids came home and said, well, we don't have a textbook, so I need to be on my iPad to, to read it. Mm-hmm. And that's oftentimes not necessarily true, because I asked the teachers, like, oh, no, we, we can take one out. So there, there is that option as a parent to ask the teacher and say, hey, you, my kid's telling me he has to read online. He's not doing well. He needs to interact with the paper. He needs to... And, it turns out there was, you know, oh, they have one on a shelf somewhere. We can loan it for the entire year. And so those kind of things exist. Even though they push us toward technology, you can always sort of just ask the next question, is there a way for, for us to limit that? Because the distraction of the iPad, you know, you've got other things in the background, other icons, and he's not engaging with the text as clearly, I thought, which is particular students. You can't underline. You can't make notes in the margin. It's not the same. Either. No. And there's other things distracting you. Yeah. Right, you got little pop-ups. Yeah. Message feed. Yeah. And um, yes. Elena was just saying in Chapel Hill, which you think of academic excellence, they don't use, they use textbooks. Hmm. They use textbooks. They don't have, te- they, it, because they are the scientists. They're the ones that are doing this research, and they're not going to let their kids um, have that stuff. Well, and even the people who own all these companies. Right. When you look at their own family, Behaviors. Yeah, it's like the rock stars that that yes. give such filth, saying that they would never let their children <laughs> listen to that music. But they'll make some money from That's it. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> but your kids can. Yeah, yeah. 
myself just this week asking myself, this was clarity for me, because um, our oldest son is struggling with social anxiety, and he is a very, very gregarious, outgoing person. And he is now, um, is this April? Is this April? Thank you, sorry. Um, he's three months into, like, technology detox. And, um, and it, it just didn't even come to the forefront of my mind that that, you know, was causing some of the issue there. I knew that it was an issue, but I just didn't know to what degree, because he was, his phone was his life. Mm-hmm. I mean, his lifeline to, it was like blood for him, not mm-hmm. just his lifeline to the world, but... It's was, an appendage, so when you cut it off, yeah. It. Mm-hmm. And so our conversations are richer. Um, his gratitude for a lot of things are richer and deeper now, and I'm truly thankful for that, but... I just found myself thinking this past week, like, why is he struggling with this social anxiety now? Sometimes in group <coughs> settings and sometimes just when he has to, you know, go out of the, the house that he's in. Um, and so this is really clarity for me that hmm. I'm sure that's going to get better as he continues with this social, this um, technology detox. Yeah, because he's strengthening and practicing those tasks. So it makes me think back to that statement, we can do hard things. You know, parenting around technology is a hard thing. So a lot of, I talk about grit sometimes, you know. Parenting for grit takes grit. Parenting for technology is hard. Um, And so maybe just as we move into the next week, um, we can just start asking the Lord for how how he might guide us. Do you have anything else you want to say, Clark? Oh, sure. Well, should I pray? Yes, please. Okay. Lord, one of the things that um, strikes me is even that sometimes as believers, we're so leery of science and research. Um, But even just in doing this study, uh, and really just doing reading about this over a, a series of years, I'm realizing that you know, I've found a point of commonality with the people that are doing this research that I might not have even recognized had I not been because of my job required to read some of these articles. And in a way, that's what empathy is. That's, what's, that's, that's what empathy is, just being willing to engage with, with ideas and with people that we might not initially be inclined to engage with. And Lord, you... you you call us to engage, maybe not necessarily with ideas, but certainly with people. Certainly with people. Because every human being that walks this earth was created by you and has your fingerprints all over him or her. Um, So I ask that you just help us continue to grow in our willingness to um, honor, honor the people that you created and look for evidence of you and uh, your image, even in people that can be very difficult to see your image in. Um, I ask that you would um, just kind of erase from our minds anything that we don't need to worry about or think about. Um, And then I also ask that you just speak to us in our heart of hearts about uh, how you might be 
uh, guiding us to take, you know, take an action just for ourselves, even in our own lives, um, as we continue to to try to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds, and to love others as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.